0: cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every infirmity. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, we picture the Lord now going from village to village, to town from town to town, and seeing all these people that are afflicted, some of them physically, some of them psychologically, some of them spiritually. Imagine him going around with those penetrating eyes of his, seeing souls around him, he really saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. If, if St. Matthew was able to use that expression, it was no doubt because, well, he either heard it directly from our Lord himself or saw it. He saw, our Lord saw these people. They were disoriented. It's so almost as though they were tired from life meaning that they didn't really have a sense of meaning, they, they couldn't get a sense of renewal in their work or in their family. Many probably had conflicts at work, maybe under very difficult uh, work situations or difficult bosses. They had hard family situations, in-laws that were difficult. So, as so though they can't put everything together in a coherent uh, unity. It says, oh, many had just eaten bad food, you know, and um, people around must have had a very uh, stultified understanding of the human person, a stultified understanding of of human sexuality, of the relationship between men and women. Some of them may have had this from a young age. Like today, many spend many... Hours from a young age behind the screen on their phones. They've seen it all. Today, the generation around us is quite worried about the future. They don't see beautiful horizons in the future. Many of them feel it is unsafe. They are at schools and are often fed very silly ideas, crazy ideologies. About a world without God or a world without meaning, and of course Jesus saw all this. Yet he did not. We could say he did not get anxious or stressed. He he looked at the crowd. He looked at each one, each individual, young, old. He looked at them and he loved them with those penetrating eyes, eyes of a shepherd, eyes of a friend. And uh, St. Luke uh, describes the sense of deep empathy that invaded his gaze as he looked, as he was going around from village to village, healing or talking. You could say the deep sense of empathy. Empathy. And this is what St. Luke says As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Weeping over Jerusalem, he wasn't weeping over Jerusalem in a generic sense, just at the city, and the, at the walls, and the buildings, who cares about the buildings? I mean, well, yeah, they're, they're important, but it was really the souls that he was weeping over, but of course he saw that city and he he understood all the conflicts that had taken place there. And he also understood that it would be surrounded on all its ramparts by violent men. He understood what was going to happen in the future. The the violence of the Romans and the and the siege that would take place years later. As we as we enter the gospel there, we can see two attitudes of our Lord that we can examine in ourselves as well to well we could let's say attribute two words there in our Lord's going from village to village one is empathy the other one is a sense of urgency empathy and urgency both you could say fit together like a puzzle or like like uh, like a lock in lockstep, to provide us with the loving face of Jesus. It wasn't a romantic image in which only empathy was there, with the kind of long-haired, blonde figure of Jesus where it's mere empathy, but it was always empathy with a sense of urgency, a sense of the importance of the moment. And for us, the first requirement of charity is recognizing in the other person somebody worthy of consideration and placing ourselves in the person's circumstances. That's empathy. It's the first expression of charity that we place ourselves in that person's circumstances. In imagining, imagine this guy has this family situation, this guy has this formation or lack of formation, this guy has this struggle. And that's why the, the word empathy is often used to refer to the ability to put oneself in others' shoes or taking stock of their situation, being able to, to be aware of their sentiments. It's not our situation as such. We don't have this problem or that problem that that person may have, but, but we can f- somehow feel it. And it's an attitude that fosters communion, kind of union with hearts, of hearts. St. Peter exhorted, think the same thoughts, all of you, and share the same feelings. The same feelings. Feelings. Feelings tend to be seen as superficial. But right from the start, the disciples experienced how sensitive Christ was, as we see here at the beginning, you know, that he approached Jerusalem and and uh, and he wept. But that was that was kind of just like the, the last straw, if you like, of many experiences that the apostles had on seeing the sensitivity of Christ with regards to those around him. His ability to put himself in the place of others, his refined understanding of what was going on in the human heart, and the suffering of others, even profoundly understanding the ignorance that was present in others. When he reached Na'im, you know. Uh, he, he realizes the heartbroken the, the heartbreak rather of the of the widow who had lost her son and her her son was dead there, and she he raised the son up because he saw he he profoundly resonated with the heartbreak of this this widow who was now completely alone he couldn't raise up the, her husband well he could I, I suppose he could have, but he who knows but the uh, we don't know anything about the, the, the husband of that widow. Maybe, maybe somebody knows. But at least her son was the only one she had left. And now he's dead. He had compassion. He had empathy. Or hearing of Jairus' petition and hearing the different laments of the mourners when he arrives at the home and he brings consolation to the first to Jairus, and he calms the others those who were lamenting and mourning he's aware of the needs of those following him and is concerned when they don't have anything to eat he multiplies the, the loaves and fish he cries with Martha and Mary when he sees Lazarus' tomb and all the people there and all the friends and the relatives he cries, he weeps you wept over Jerusalem, you wept over that too? Or perhaps the, the example of the disciples of Emmaus, how he approaches them and feels their pain, feels their lament, and encourages them. His attitude in front of these um, hardships is never one of pessimism, it's much more one of urgency. Something has to be done. But it starts with empathy. And we can never give a sense of pessimism. And rather we have to give a sense of urgency. Somehow we have to... When we hear people talking about their pain, their problems, somewhere there... something. Yes, we have to, of course, have the first step, which is a sense of empathy and of pain. And then we we somehow... Transfer a sense of urgency about what to do. In, in the letter of the father, of our father, Vos Autum, he quotes from St. Paul's letter to Timothy Omnis, omnis, vult, salvus, fiedi. God, Christ wants that all men be saved and he elaborates on that phrase from St Paul that nobody be lost and he he takes advantage to give his life for all in a complete gift of love which is the perfect holocaust he does not jesus does not want to convince by sheer force Being among men, next to men, among men, he moves them gently to follow him in search of true peace and authentic joy. Our father continues, we, my sons and daughters, we have to do the same because what pushes us is this same charity of Christ. Caritas Christi Urgitnos. Urgitnos. Well, urgit is to push or to urge us on, but it has this sense of, of urgency. Caritas Christi Urgitnos. Together with that empathy. He says, Con la luz siempre nueva, nueva de la caridad, Con un generoso amor a Dios y al prójimo renovaremos a la vista del ejemplo que nos dio el maestro nuestras ansias de comprender, de disculpar, de no sentirnos enemigos de nadie. With the always new light of charity, with the generosity of love of God, and love of our neighbor, we will renew with the example of our Lord our drive, our desires to understand, to forgive, and never to feel ourselves enemy enemy of anyone. Never to feel ourselves enemy of anyone. Well, it's easy not to feel ourselves enemy of somebody who understands us and this has the same ideas, but we must. You know, people who have very different ideas, maybe even anti-Catholic ideas, or, or who knows, uh, don't like the work, or, or don't like what we do. We can never feel that they are our enemy, or who have crazy, like let's say, moral ideas that I don't know. My Father says, the work of God was born to extend throughout the entire world, the message of love and of peace that the Lord has entrusted to us. So as to invite all men to respect the the, the rights of, of the person, that is how I want my sons and daughters to form. That's what I want my sons and daughters to do, and that's what you can be. That's our purpose, you could say. To be sources of, uh, of peace and joy, and uh, to be sources of peace and joy may seem generic to us, uh, but the the Pope used an expression that he addressed to young people in particular. Uh, expression very difficult to translate because he spoke of it, of it in Paraguay. I don't know if that was the first time, but. Uh He's used that uh, numerous times, but it is difficult to to translate. He said to them, to the young people, que hagan lio, que hagan lio, which means uh, go and make a mess. Go and just make a mess. You're thinking the Holy Father is asking us to make a mess? What what do you mean here? Well, it's because I don't know how to translate. Que hagan lio. But um, he said, uh, go and just... Go for it, right? Basically, uh, he said, Hagan lío, pero también ayuden a arreglar y organizar el lío que hacen. Las dos cosas, eh? He says, las dos cosas. So, hagan lío means go out, meet people, have apostolic drive, just like this kind of disorder, this kind of disorganizational apostolic drive and we understand really what it means like that that is empathy and drive that pushes us and then he says well and then also well you know we also got to be organized he says un lío que nos dé un corazón libre un lío que nos dé solidaridad un lío que nos dé esperanza Un lío que nazca de haber conocido a Jesús y de, haber, y de saber que Dios, a quien conocí, es mi fortaleza. Es, ese es, debe ser, el lío que hagan. ¿Eh? This, this, this expression, maybe somebody has a good translation to "hagan lío, but it somehow means, go and make a ruckus. I guess it's the best expression. Go and make a ruckus. Make a mess. A ruckus that comes from a free heart that gives us solidarity, that gives us hope. Uh, A ruckus that is born of a love for Jesus and, uh, and is one that knows that God is the one I know and that gives me strength. He doesn't want us dreaming of early retirement. Some people are already planning early retirement in their late fifties, early sixties, and they they can organize things well. It's really what our life is about, Aganlio, to to do apostolate, and and it is the result of the, those two virtues, empathy and, you know, uh, and uh, together with. Uh, that uh, apostolic drive, that urgency, empathy and urgency, together. In the opening passages of uh, the book, Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict speaks of the very meaning of Evangelion. If Pope Francis speaks about it in an immediate sense of making a ruckus, well, Pope Benedict looks at the origin of the actual word. And he says, well, both evangelists designate Jesus' preaching, this preaching going from town to town and so, so forth, uh, with the Greek term evangelion. So why why do the, the evangelists use that word, evangelion? What's the What's the reason? And he said, well, the term has recently been translated as good news. He was preaching the good news, Evangelion. And that sounds attractive, good news. But it falls far short of the order of magnitude of what is actually meant by the word Evangelion. This term figures in the vocabulary of the Roman emperors who understood themselves to be as lords, saviors, and redeemers of the world. The messages issued by the emperor were called in Latin, evangelium, regardless of whether or not their content was particularly cheerful and pleasant. The idea was that what comes from the emperor is a saving message, that it is not just a piece of news or information, but a change of the world for the better. That's the origin of the word evangelion. And so he says, so when the evangelists adopt this word, and it therefore becomes the generic name for their writings, evangelium, the gospels, what they mean to tell us is this, what the emperors who pretend to be gods legitimately, illegitimately claim really occurs here. A message endowed with plenary authority, a message that is not just talk, but reality. So it's not just informative speech, but performative speech. It's a famous line that the Pope often, Pope Benedict at least, likes to emphasize. We're not just giving them information, but something that really changes them. So, it changes us, with that sense of urgency, that sense of empathy but it also has to of course change the others our Lord said I have compassion on the crowd so we we have to see how we can live that that ruckus that evangelion and we can help to see we can examine ourselves how we have done that how we have have brought that good news to the young people around us, whether they're St. Mayfield types or older, St. Gabriel, because they ought not to be afraid of the invitation that Jesus offers when he says, follow me. It's a radical and demanding one that always is preceded by that, that loving look. but do I realize the urgency of what I have to do here and where I am in my work in my in, in the center with the residents when the Lord walked from city to city he cleared he, he cured them bringing them you know the, the clear making the blind see the dumb talk the maimed but those are all physical ailments, but he also cured them of their loneliness, which is in many ways the the disease, disease of the modern era. You could say that boredom hardly existed before the modern era, but now it afflicts so many and perhaps explains the popularity of something like YouTube, which can just lead you down a rabbit hole where you're just you know, your attention is drawn. Do I realize what the love of God can really do around me? Do I have a sense of urgency? This is what we must uh, ask the Lord. Like that point number one in the forge, where you can just sense the sense of urgency, which which, which our, our our father wrote this, he said, "We are children of God, we are children of God, bearers of the only flame that can light up the path of the earth for souls, of the only brightness which can never be darkened, dimmed or overshadowed overshadowed. The Lord uses us as torches to make that light shine out. It depends on each on, on us that Many should not remain in darkness, but walk instead along the paths that lead to eternal life. We are children of God. We are bearers of the only flame. He's not saying, well, we have one flame, some other people have other flames, it's good for them, it's good for you, you're okay, I'm okay, we're fine, everybody's good. The Lord uses us as torches. So, in your prayer, who am I actually a torch for? whose life do I actually illuminate? Not because I'm smart, not because I'm brilliant, not because I'm somehow good, but I am a torch, somehow. And the only flame is, of course, Jesus Christ. I'm just a stick, really. The flame is Jesus Christ. I don't illuminate with my own wisdom, with my brilliance, much more with the gift of myself, maybe with my zeal, with my concern, had to be a living torch. And maybe I I haven't allowed that to happen. Just like the way I might organize doctrine classes uh, with my friends or pre you know, or, or ask the priest to give it. You don't have to even give it. Go and bug the priest and say, Father, can you give us a course on moral theology? Sure, no problem. For my friends. For one friend. Good. We'll do it. People love talks about morals, about what to do, why this is wrong, and they love to just love to hear. They just they just eat this stuff up. Think of the sheep around you, now. Good guys, the good the, you know the people who could, who are maybe not married yet, but maybe they could be associates. Throw that, you know, throw that into the ring. anecdote of those two boys who were spending holidays with their uncle who was a fine art auctioneer and one day they attended an auction uh with their with their uncle and the first large canvas that was being auctioned off portrayed a soldier uh, a lar- you know, large large painting beautiful painting of a soldier and the boys were surprised to see that somebody bought that painting it took a while, but eventually it was bought, but it was a pretty, you know, modest price, nothing very expensive. But then, there was a small picture that came out. It was kind of, you could barely make out what it was. It was kind of dark and dirty, faded, old, a very old frame on it. And, uh, and as the bidding started, the bidding war went on, and, and finally it was sold, but at a Fortune—I mean, like ten times that other painting, it was, or more. It was really crazy. You know? So, and you could, they were trying to look at well, what is this painting? You know, it was, and so um, they asked on the way home. The, the boys asked their uncle for the reason why one painting of the great soldier was paid for bought for little, and the other one was went for so much. And he, and he said, "Well, that this piece had been painted by a great artist, and all his works were always very valuable. And this artist was dead." So all his works of great of a huge value. And even if it was dirty and damaged, well, you just have proper restoration. You know, well, you just restore it, clean it off, change the frame maybe if necessary, and then it can decorate the greatest of all museums. Mm. And, well, this, this can happen to souls. You know, they are made by the greatest of artists. Mm. And we have... St. Rifo guys, St. Gabriel people, cooperators, they're like that, so that painting. And they've all come from a great artist. Maybe they're a bit battered and damaged. Maybe they've lacked formation. They've been told silly things, or they've gotten to the bad habits of, of either, you know, that has not contributed to their formation, or. But they're still in the hands of a great artist, just as you and I are. Both of those were painted by the same artist, and that artist is also the restorer at the same time. In the sacrament of penance, and they can, and then in the end, they can be as good as new. They can be priceless. The Lord wants to use us to bring souls around to the great restorer, and this is true. The soul can be restored in confession. The soul can be restored in a bit of doctrinal formation. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Let's see how we will really follow him in this coming year, whom we will offer to him in obedience to that mission that we can make a mess cause a ruckus but then organize it all properly as well so we can bring many souls to our blessed Lord through the intercession of our Lady Queen of Apostles I thank you my God for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation I ask you help to put them into effect my Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph my Father and Lord my Guardian Angel intercede for me.